You know, the world that we live in uh, is a mixed bag, isn't it? It's a mixed bag. I, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, you know, there's a moment uh, in your day, you know how it is, where, where it's like everything is just perfect. I don't know. It could be, it could be lots of moments. I mean, sometimes for me, it's in the morning. You know, I wake up and, and, and my kids are sleeping and I have some time with my wife and I look at the sunrise and I'm in the word and it's like, wow, the world is beautiful, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's an amazing creation that we live in. And we have these, these kind of mountaintop moments all throughout life, don't we? The, the moment that your bride walks, you know, down the aisle or the moment that your first, you know, kid or one of your kids comes into this world and you're, it's just these, these amazing moments and you're thinking, God, you just, you made such a beautiful world. But then even seconds later, we have quite the opposite feeling, don't we? <laughs> We have moments where we go, this world is so broken, so deeply, systemically broken that I just, I can't even live another second. You know, one second you're watching TV and you're watching, uh, you know, something that's just displaying the magnificence and the beauty of God's creation. You're watching one of the Planet Earth documentaries and it's just like, wow, God's creation's amazing. And then you turn the channel and you're hearing about ethnic cleansing and you're hearing about murders and you're hearing about uh, rapes and, and, and you're hearing about all the darkness and the underbelly of the world. And you ask yourself, how can the world be such a mixed bag? And maybe an even more interesting question is, how deep does this world need to be cut to remove the parts that are broken? You know, we like to separate out the broken things and the good things in life into these nice little silos and categories, but it doesn't really work like that, right? The same sweet little kid who climbs up in our lap and gives us a kiss on the cheek is the same little kid that five minutes later lies when you ask him if they did something or hit their sister, the same lips that, that, that say something beautiful can Im- immediately say something that's a curse. I mean, humans have this great potential to do both good and both bad. And creation, the same waves that are beautiful washing up on the sea are the same waves that become tidal waves that can destroy life. The same fire that you sit around and it's warm and it's beautiful and it's cozy is the same fire that destroyed all these houses in our community just a few months ago. The world's a mixed bag, and, and what is broken, and what is good, and what is beautiful, and what is wretched is so intertwined and intermingled, who can possibly figure out what to get rid of? It's confusing. How deep does this world have to be cut to fix it, to remove it? And maybe an even more pertinent question I'd like you to consider this morning is, how do I know if I'm part, if I'm part of the part that will be cut or part of the part that will remain. What's interesting about what Drew just read for us this morning is this is God making a deep incision into his creation, and he's removing a piece of it. Okay, he's removing a piece of it. Uh, we're, we're getting back into the book of Genesis here. We took a little break, a little hiatus, in, um, and looked at some material in the book of John when we were in the Easter season. But now we're going to get back into Genesis, and we're looking at the Noah material in the Old Testament. Now, the Noah material is, is extremely fascinating. It's extremely fascinating. But we need to think about it rightfully. We need to think about it uh, you know, carefully. Basically, God, uh, through, through the author of Genesis, has let us know why he was going to flood the earth. Remember, uh, former, or, uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 6, uh, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That doesn't sound like a mixed bag. That just sounds like it's all bad. Things have gotten terrible. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says, The earth was corrupt in God's sight. 
The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So God determined to make an end of all flesh. So God is looking at the world that he created, that he created beautiful and good, and he designed in in such a way that it was to be a joy and, and a place for human beings to thrive, and it had become corrupt. The cancer had spread. And now he is forced to amputate. And that's what the flood is. God is like a surgeon, like a precise surgical doctor. He's coming in and he's removing something that that must be removed. Now, how are we to think about God's judgment? Because literally what we're looking at this morning, uh, what we're looking at this morning is not why God flooded the earth, it's how God flooded the earth, and he did. He drowned the whole world, okay? And how are we to think about that? How are we to frame that? Let me just, by way of introduction here, let me just give you a few things to think about when you think about the the judgment of this event, of this global flood. We need to think about this a few different ways. First of all, we need to see the flood as being realistic. Okay, we need to see the flood as being realistic because we have a tendency with the flood of Noah to make it real cutesy. Okay, you know, to, to, to paint it on the nursery, on the wall with the cute little boat and the sweet little waves and the beautiful little rainbow over the background. And we think, oh, Noah's Ark is such a sweet nursery story. Okay, that's fine, but that's not realistic. Part of the reason we have people, I think, that are calling into question the validity of the scripture isn't because it's not valid, it's because Christians are shying away from what it actually says. We've got to be willing to get honest about what our book says. Here's what happened. This is universal judgment. God drowned the whole world. Men, women, children, animals, plant life, judgment, massive amounts of water carrying boulders and trees, broke the backs of human beings and destroyed every living thing on the face of the earth except for a few that were on the ark. Can we just get real? That's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy. What do we do with that? How do we think about that? We need to think about it as realistic. We also need to think about the flood as being causal. What I mean by that is that we need to see the flood as as a response, not an assault. See, you could pick up the book of Genesis and and read, and you could punch in right here at chapter 7, and you could see God drowning the world, and you could go, wow, God is the perpetrator. But that's not true, is it? Let's say you didn't have any prior experience to a particular event that happened, and you just showed up at the hospital one day, and you went into the emergency room, and you watch, and you, and you, you popped into a room, and you didn't really understand what was going on. You didn't understand anything about the medical world. You just saw a doctor cutting off a limb from a patient. You would think, that doctor is the enemy, right? But what you don't understand is that that patient will lose his life if he doesn't lose his limb. And so if you read Genesis and the flood account and you go, well, God is the aggressor here, God is the enemy here, you don't understand sin. God is forced to respond to something that has been introduced to his perfect creation in such a way that it's out of control. Do a little thought experiment with with me here, okay? God drowning the whole world. That's a lot of pain. That's a lot of immediate shrieks of terror, okay? But think about this. What if God hadn't drowned the world? 
What if God had allowed the metastasization of sin and the gangrene of what was happening in the culture? What if he had just let it continue for six, seven, eight thousand years? How much more pain? How much more hurt? How much more abuse? How many more rapes? How many more murders? How much more oppression? How many more tears? How many more lies? How much more pain would have happened if God had not intervened when he did? You see, humanity had got off on a largely uh, skewed trajectory, and God knew where that would go. So what he's doing here is he is responding to the fire. He's the fireman kicking down the door and saying, we are going to lose the building here, so let me pull out the person. Sin has gotten really bad. Now, this is hard for us in the West to think about. It sounds like God's a big bully. And, And, you know, the real reality is it's just because we live in a very sterile world. We live in a world where sin has not really been seen for what it is. We've dressed it up. We've made sin seem like it's really not that big of a deal. When you experience sin in such a way where it is thrust upon you, and you see the underbelly and the ugliness of what a human being can do when it is consumed by sinful motives, you want justice. It is human nature to want justice. Humanity had gotten very bad. So we need to think about it as causal. We also need to think about it as temporary. See, what God's doing here, and, and we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit more later, he's not dealing with the, the issue of sin in totality, right? Why? Well, because a sinful human got on the boat and got off the boat and continued to carry this sinful nature forward into the post-Noahic world. So God is not dealing forever with sin, but he is mitigating sin temporarily. Okay, he's, he's, he's saving the patient to live another day. So we need to think of it as temporary. We also need to think about the flood material as typological. You know, Sam, what is typological? Okay, typological means that the flood is a type of something else. It's meant to typify, it's meant to foreshadow, it's meant to make us think of something greater. Uh, take a look really quick with me at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Sometimes it's helpful when you're reading the Old Testament, by the way, and you're not sure how to think about something. How should we as New Testament Christians think about the flood of Noah? Uh, the New Testament oftentimes will tell you how to think about it. So here's the Apostle Peter in the New Testament telling us how to think about the flood. What should the flood tell us about? And he does so in 2 Peter chapter 3. Here's what he says. He said, now this is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring you up, or I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Okay, I'm reminding you of something. What is he reminding them of? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, because that's what scoffers do, right? They scoff. Um, Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? So what is Peter dealing with here in the first century? Peter is dealing with people that are denying the fact that that there will come a day of judgment in the future, a day of reckoning. He, he's dealing with people that are denying that. And here's Peter's argument for why we can know that a day of judgment is coming. Are you ready? He says, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, this is what the scoffers say, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So in other words, people are looking around like, hey, you know, the world's been here a long time. So this whole idea of God coming to judge and reckon all sin, eh, that's, just, that's not real. But here's what Peter says. He turns to the ark in the Noahic flood to make his argument. 
He says, verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, that is flooded, with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire Listen, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what Peter is saying here is he's saying, if you want to know that God is going to judge someday in the final eschatological judgment, the end times judgment, you need to look no further than Noah's flood. Because Noah's flood is meant to remind us to serve as a a type of a future judgment to come. Okay, Sam, why does that matter? It matters because Noah's flood didn't fix the issue. Did you notice that? I mean, God did a pretty cosmic renovation, didn't he? Flooded the whole earth, stripped the house to the studs. And as soon as Noah gets off the boat, he gets plastered face down drunk in his tent and naked. And sin continues on and on and on. Read the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament is an R-rated book. It does not shy away from the evils of men. Some pretty heinous things. Even God's best did some pretty heinous things. David classically sleeps with another woman and sends her husband to die to cover up his sin from shame. Sin's ugly. It's so ugly that it finds itself popping out even in the midst of God's covenant. People, sin continued. It lived on the ark. Think of Lord of the Rings, right? They were there. The ring was in Mount Doom, right? He could have thrown it in. They could have been done with it. And what does man do? He decides to keep the ring, which allows the evil of Sauron, I know I sound like a nerd, to endure. And it continues on. This is what's happened in the book, in in this story of Noah. God is cleansing the world, but sin continues. It is still endured. Why does it endure? Because sin is something within humans, That is not a popular statement. We live in a world that says humans are basically good. Wrong. Where does sin come from? You. Me. We are the producers of sin. Noah's flood was not meant to fully deal with sin. It was simply meant to temporarily mitigate the spread of of an intensely sinful world, and it was meant to remind you and me that God, listen, God has picked a day in which he will fully deal with sin forever. He's picked his day. You know, God knows the day. He knew Noah's day. He told Noah, he said, 120 years, Noah, and the flood's coming. And in the same way, Jesus himself, if you remember Matthew 24, he said, but concerning that day, the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father only. There is a day coming where all sin will be done. And there, listen, there will be a great sorting between the beauty of this world, the things that God had intended in this world, and the things that God did not. Here's a verse that is kind of an interesting thing that Jesus says, Matthew chapter 10, he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have come to bring, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus said that? He did. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Jesus is the great divider. Because Jesus came to separate out what is good and what must go, ultimately. So we need to think about it as typological. And lastly, and here's where I'm going to transition here a little bit into the encouraging stuff. Yay. Um, We need to think about the flood as being relevant, okay? Because Noah, in reality, Noah was called to survive, and that's great, and I'm sure that was awesome for him, and I'm sure that he was really thankful. But simultaneously, Noah was called to sit on a boat and watch thousands of everyone that he knew, all of his friends, all of his family be drowned. You ever think about what that would have been like for him? You ever think about what life on the boat would have been like? I don't think it would have been easy. Mm. Noah was called to give his whole life to this construction of the boat in preparation to building the boat. He was called to endure through tribulation. And here's my, my, my point, okay? Um, we are living in a Noahic era, so to speak. Jesus made that very clear. He said there is coming a time where God will have it with sin. His patience will run out. He has set his day. There's a time where all sin will be put away forever. In that time, Christians will live to it and possibly through it. And I would suggest to you right now that that even though we're not seeing God's cosmic judgment right now on the world, I would suggest to you that in many ways we have some things to learn about Noah and what it looks like to live in the boat when all all the others are not. And so that's what I want to talk about. What does it look like to live on the boat? What does it look like to live in a world that you know is headed towards eternal destruction? What does it look like to live on the boat when you know everybody else doesn't want to be on the boat and you know what's going to happen? What does it look like to live on that? Let me just offer some encouraging points from this passage, okay? Um, Three truths about living life on the boat. And then I'll try to bring it around and answer some of our questions in the beginning. Three truths about living life on the boat. I want you to see three things that God does for Noah as God is doing this great sorting, this great flooding of the earth. The first thing God does for Noah is he preserves. Okay, God preserves. If you're a note taker, just write them all down. God preserves, God previews, and God produces. God preserves, God previews, and God produces. First, God preserves. Take a look at verse 15 of chapter, we're back in Genesis here, chapter 7. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And I just want you to see this one phrase, and the Lord shut him in. Okay, that's encouraging. Here's what happened. God told him to build the boat, but God didn't tell him to shut the door. Why? Because that's his job. He said, I'm going to shut the door. Why is that encouraging? It's encouraging because if God shuts the door, then only God can open the door. God is not only responsible for salvation, he's responsible for preservation. This is one of the most encouraging points in the Bible to me. Because see, I don't believe I saved me, I believe God saved me. And because God saved me, I don't believe I can unsave me. I don't believe God's an abortionist. I don't believe he removes what he created. I don't believe he, he destroys the life that he started. 
right? God preserves the life that he creates. I love that in God's saving work in the midst of all of this universal judgment, God shuts the door. In Ephesians chapter 1, 13, Paul speaks of a similar idea theologically. He says, in him, Christ, you also, when you heard the word of the truth of the gospel, your salvation, so in other words, when you got saved and believed in him, listen, were sealed with what? With the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. <clears throat> this is good news. Okay, not only are you on the boat, Jesus shut the door. He preserves you. This idea of sealing, <clears throat> what Paul is getting out of here is he's saying that when you got saved, God put his stamp on you. There's an interesting illustration of this in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, where Daniel, you know the story, right? Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. King Darius, basically, uh, he has to deliver because he, he has to basically honor his own word. So he puts Daniel into the den with the lions. He rolls a stone over it. And in Daniel, chapter 6, if you go look at it, it specifically says the king sealed the tomb or sealed the lair. And what that meant was that the king literally put his signet ring into hot wax on top of the stone that was placed over that. What that means is that if anybody came and tried to open up the den, they would answer to all the power and all the authority of the king. The only one that can open the seal is the one that made the seal or the one it was intended for. So when Paul the Apostle in the book of Ephesians says, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit signet, that means that God put his seal on you and it's the Holy Spirit. He sealed you. Isn't that a good news? That's exciting. We are sealed. You know, when I walk across the street with my son, who's five, he thinks he's holding my hand. But when some crazy guy starts walking up or some crazy car comes driving up, do you think he's holding my hand or do you think I'm holding his? Sometimes it feels like it's all on me to hold on to the Lord right now. And in a sense, it is on you. God does call us to faithfulness. But ultimately, in God's economy, in the big picture, the reality is he is holding you. Somebody needs to hear that. Some of you guys in here are feeling like, man, I'm just everything I can do to hold on. And let me encourage you that actually one of the most encouraging things to remember is that God is the one that shuts the door. Let me show you another thing here in verse 1 of chapter 8 in Genesis Starting in uh, chapter 7, 24. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, but God, if you ever want to do a cool um, study, just look up all the places where it says, but God, in the Bible. It's incredible. This happened, but God. Ephesians 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy. Here's one of those, but God instances. But God, listen, remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And what does that mean? Does that mean that God forgot? Does it mean that God was like over here busy, like causing the deeps of the water to break forth and, and flood to happen? And he goes, oh shoot, I totally forgot about Noah over in this giant wooden tomb floating around. Maybe I should go get him. Is that what it means? Whenever you see the word remembered in the Old Testament regarding the Lord, it's always a verb that has action. It's not that God forgot and he remembered. It's that God took action. God takes actions. Here's some examples uh, for you. In the Old Testament, it says God remembered Rachel, Jacob's wife. What does that mean? 
It means God visited Rachel and he blessed her. He, he became her salvation. He allowed her to have children. He remembered her. When God remembered the Israelites in Egypt, it didn't mean that he uh, w- forgot them. It means that he acted. He became their champion. He saved them. And when David cries out in Psalm 25 for God to remember him, he's crying out for God to act. My point is here is that the author of Genesis is making it very clear whose hand it is guiding the ark on the water. God is remembering Noah. He is saving Noah. He is responsible for the salvation and the preservation of Noah. And listen, he's responsible for the salvation and the preservation of you if you have believed the gospel. And he is capable and competent to deliver you God preserves the godly in what seems, in what often seems to be the most godless circumstances. Let me say that again because it's important. The, God preserves the godly in what seem to be the most godless circumstances. He always has. And he always will. It wasn't all up to Noah just to, to build a boat and it was all to Noah to float. No, God is in control of all of this. We have so many accounts of God the Father coming into the most godless spaces with his people. One of the accounts is in the book of Ezekiel where Israel's literally been kicked out of their homeland. They've been kicked out of Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit literally is seen in the book of Ezekiel leaving Jerusalem to show up in Babylon in order to be with the remnant because God enters into our tribulation. He enters into our struggle. In Daniel chapter three, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace, all of a sudden there is another one in the furnace, one like the son of man, son of God, pardon me. Okay, the idea is that God literally enters into the furnace with them. He shows up in the midst of judgment. He shows up in the midst of suffering. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, knowing that they would be martyred, by the way, knowing that there was going to be intense suffering to come, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, let me just try to make it really simple. He started a work in you, he'll finish it. I used to be part of a youth group. Um, I was kind of laughing about this, and I don't mean any disrespect to this youth group because it was an amazing, um, God used it. But I was part of this youth group where we did an altar call every week. And uh, there was 15 kids in the group. And it was always amazing to me that five kids got saved every week. And I thought, wow, this is crazy. You know, how are five kids getting saved every single night? And, then, and we never knew because our youth pastor would have us shut our eyes and say, hey, you know, if you want to get saved, look up at me. And I see that hand, I see that hand, I see the hand. I'm like, where are these people? Who are these kids getting saved every time? And then it finally occurred to me later as a youth leader that it's the same kids getting saved over and over and over and over again. And the problem is, is that we confuse salvation with sanctification. See, we fail, we walk away or we struggle and we go, oh man, I must not be saved. So I need to do it again just for good measure. The proof of your salvation is that you continue to walk. We talked about that a few weeks ago, right? The proof of your salvation is that you continue to come back to the grace of God. He shuts the door. He remembers Noah. He's responsible for your salvation. Like how John MacArthur says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You can't lose something that you didn't find in the first place. 
I'm not saying you didn't have any responsibility or any faith. I'm not getting into this whole Calvinism thing. I'm just saying, or Arminianism thing, I'm just saying that God saved you. Call it whatever you want. It's what the Bible says. And God will keep you. He will keep you. The second thing I want you to see is God previews. Not only does he preserve, he previews. Take a look at verse 6 in chapter 8. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But if the dove found no place to set her foot, she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him and waited another seven days. And again sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the, the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. And this is a fascinating little passage here. And I want you to see God's grace in this. I want you to see what God's doing here. Okay, uh, first of all, practically what's going on here. God, so Noah sends out a raven and then he sends out a dove. Why does he do that? A raven was an unclean animal, according to the Mosaic law. Uh, a raven really is kind of an unclean animal. It, it'll land anywhere. So sending out the raven was kind of a way to test to see, you know, how soggy is it out there still? The fact that the raven doesn't come back means there's some livable land out there. Sending out the dove becomes a, sort of a more um, elaborate test to go, is there land suitable for humans out there in God's new world? So he sends the dove out, and the dove brings back an olive branch. What is an olive branch? It's a sign of life. Okay, so, so there's a practical function to this. There's a practical function that, that, that Noah is just sort of testing to see if God has truly allowed the waters to recede and to see if there truly is a new world for him to step out on. But there's also some seriously important symbolism here. Some seriously important, first of all, the dove. So for Noah, the dove was a signal or a sign that the peace had come after the flood. The flooding was done. Peace had come. The end of the judgment, for now, had come. And Noah could step out into a cleansed world. And there's no mistake that when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who would bring a new world into this one, the one that was going to bring salvation, when Jesus was anointed, at his baptism, what was it that appeared to him? It was a dove. So this is, in one sense, it's to remind us of God's faithfulness to deliver Noah, but in another sense, it's to remind us of the final ark that is to come, the final dove that's, that, that has come, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And then you have this idea of the olive branch. This dove is bringing the olive branch. Well, what's, what's that all about? For Noah, the olive branch signaled that a new world was breaking into the old one. A new world was breaking into the old one. And in the New Testament, Jesus calls himself what? The vine. He says, I am the new life. I am the way in which you are going to access this new world. That even in the midst of all of this crazy judgment, you will emerge on the other side in a new world. The word I want you to, 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 to remember and to think of is that the kingdom of God is breaking in. Theologians call this idea realized eschatology or the already not yet. And it's super exciting. Okay? The idea is that Noah's sitting here on the boat just having gone through intense amounts of rain and judgment and all of this craziness. But even in the midst of that, he's seeing this new world that God has created breaking in. 
And in the same way, you and I stand in this unique place in time. We stand in this time where we are not yet in the kingdom, fully realized, Yet Jesus has been victorious on the cross. And because he's been victorious on the cross, we see the kingdom of God breaking in even now. We see it coming through life, through the church, through the Holy Spirit, working through individuals, through the fruit of the Spirit. We're seeing the kingdom of God break into this broken world. One of the ways that we persevere, one of the ways that we live on the boat, one of the ways that we we are going to get through this crazy world that we're living in right now is by tuning in to the breaking in of God's kingdom. I love that Noah sent out the dove. What does that mean? It meant meant that he was expecting. He was expecting God's deliverance. He was expecting God's new life. And so you can sit there on your couch and you can watch Fox News and you can scream at your TV or you can watch NBC and scream at your TV or CNN and scream at your TV and you can go, this world is broken. And that's fine, kind of. But I want you to be like Noah here. I want you to tune in to the breaking in of God's kingdom, even in the midst of a broken and failing world system. Because the kingdom of God is breaking in. Where is it breaking in? It's breaking in here. It's breaking in wherever Christ's people are serving him as king. It's breaking in wherever the Holy Spirit is allowed to work It's breaking in through the body of Christ, the church. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the book of Acts, the gospel was like a nuclear bomb. The kingdom of God broke in throughout all the ancient world. Thousands and thousands were saved. Right now, all over the face of the world right now, because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, the kingdom of God is breaking in. Every time you serve Jesus as the king, his kingdom shows up. Even in the midst of a drowned world even in the midst of a doomed world, even in the midst of a condemned world, even in the midst of a world where, as we just read in Peter, God will now flood it with fire, there is the breaking in of the kingdom of God. And you need to tune into that. Otherwise, you're just going to become a really, really angry person that stockpiles guns and freeze-dried food and waits for the end. (laughs) Don't be that person. Yeah, Cape Junction, we don't have any people out there like that. Okay. Okay. God previews. Also, lastly, and this is just a short point, God produces. God produces. And this is a simple point, but you just gotta, you gotta notice it. The water didn't last forever. Guys, we're standing on the precipice right now, and I'm not trying to be this friar and brimstone preacher who's saying, oh, like, but can I just say what the Bible says? We're standing on the precipice of the greatest war in creation history. Read the book of Revelation We are standing on the precipice of a world that is about to be flooded with fire. I hope you're on the boat. The good news is if you're on the boat, the water recedes and the boat is reliable. You hear me? The water recedes and the boat is reliable. Okay, Those are two very important things to see in this passage. Our hope is not pie in the sky. Our hope is an absolute assurance of things hoped for. If you are in Christ, you are delivered. But that doesn't mean that you don't still have to go through some stuff. Uh, I'm not critiquing anyone's particular eschatology. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, that's fine. But don't hang all your hats on that. It would not be the first time that God said, my believers are going to go through some tribulation. 
It, it would not be the first time that God said there will be a remnant that will live through the judgment of this world to some degree. And even if he pulls you out before the tribulation, it's still going to get hard. Things are going to get crazy. Hard decisions are going to have to be made. And I just feel it on my heart this week to remind you of what this passage reminds you of and that, that God's, God set his day. Judgment is coming. Either you're in the boat or you're in the drowned world. Either, either you're on the boat headed to the new world or you're living in the old one. Let me ask, let me just end with th- asking you three questions. Okay, we'll be done. I want you to ask yourself three questions. Question number one, how deep does God have to cut to truly save the world? How deep does God have to truly cut to save the world? You know, sin has layers, doesn't it? Sin has layers, and uh, because sin has layers, judgment has layers. There is a universal judgment that we all live in right now. It's called a fallen world. Every time you stub your toe, every time you, you, know, you find a hair in your food, which is the worst, isn't it? It's all universal judgment. You are living in a post-Adam world, a post-Genesis 3 world. There is a layer of judgment that is called sin's presence. We live in a world of sin's presence. We live in a world of sin's power. We live in a world where sin has power still to some degree over us if we give it, power over the lost. We live in a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. And we also live in a world where sin's penalty abides. How deep does God have to cut to save the world? He has to cut at all three layers. Okay, the good news of the gospel is that God, the saving one, the great physician, the one who is a redeemer, the one who will fix this world forever, will and has cut sin at all three layers. If you haven't heard this statement before, write it down, because it's really important. I didn't write it. Someone else said it once upon a time, but it's really helpful. Okay, salvation is a progressive thing, and salvation is that you have been saved, past tense, from sin's penalty, You are being saved from sin's power. That's called sanctification. And you will be saved from sin's presence. That means that as a Christian, you stand forgiven. Debt paid in full. There is no penalty for you. As a Christian, you are learning how to not let sin have power over you. That's why the more you grow in Christ, the less you sin. And then as a Christian, we have a forward-looking hope to the fact that at one point, God will completely remove sin's presence from this world. And you know what's an amazing thing is? He's gonna keep all the good stuff. I want you to do something this week. Whenever you have a moment of elation or joy over something that is righteous, something that is good, something that is godly, I want you to stop and think that's gonna be in the new world. Every time your kid climbs up in your lap, every time you give your wife a kiss, every time you have a friend that shows affection to you or loves you, every time um, someone's kind to you, every time you work hard and you sweat hard and you go, well, that was awesome, and you get to look at what you just made, every time you explore something, every time you have an adventure, every time you, you, you watch a movie and it gives you this feeling of excitement and joy, and wow, like this is, this is great, humanity is great, the world is great, I want you to go, that's new world. And then every time you turn on the news and you hear about ethnic cleansings and you hear about rapes and you hear about abortions and every time someone is rude to you or unkind to you and every time you hate yourself and every time you have a lustful thought or a covetous thought or an angry thought or an immoral thought or every time you feel sick or anxious or jealous or insecure, I want you to stop and say, that's old world. That's going to be drowned. It's going to be drowned. 
How deep does God have to cut? He cuts everything out that is not in line with his perfect design. All of that stuff I just listed, the evil stuff, it's foreign to this world. It was introduced. It doesn't belong. Here's my second question for you to ask. How can I know if I'm on the right side of that cut? How can I know if I'm on the right side of that cut? Let me let Jesus answer that question. Actually, I'll let John answer it first. John the Apostle in 1 John, he says, 2.15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. What does he mean by world? Does he mean cake? Does he mean rivers and rafting and and camping and and children and marriage? Does he mean world? Is that what he means? No, of course not. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then he's going to tell you what he means by world. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, sarks, that is the evil desires, desires that are contrary to God's rule, desires of the eyes, which is lust, covetousness, pride of life, arrogance, idolatry, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So what John's doing here is he's creating a division. He's making a cut. He's saying, To be a believer is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And if you love what God hates, you are not of God. Seems simple enough? The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You know there will not be a single person in the new heavens and the new earth that doesn't want to be there? How do you know? How do you know if you're on the right side of the cut? Where do you want to be? Do you like this world? Do you like the way it is? Do you like your sin? Do you enjoy it? God will give it to you. Say, hey, take it. Take, take where it goes. Or do you desire God's world? Do you desire what he desires? Matthew 10, 34 is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I read the first part of this earlier. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against father and daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Not that he has to do that anyways. It's pretty natural. And a person's uh, enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now listen to this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's very simple. If your life is not on the boat, then you will lose it. Either, either your life is in line with Christ's kingdom or it's not. One more, Luke chapter 17, 25. I'm just trying to let Jesus speak these, this truth instead of me because he just does a better job. Luke 17, 25. But first, Jesus says, he must suffer many things rejected by his generation just as it was in the days of Noah. Okay, this is pertinent. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What, what, what Jesus is getting at here is, you know, you look at the world and you can't tell the difference. It's like the wheat and the tares. You just can't tell. Once they grow up, you'll be able to tell. But the reality is you look out of the world and and you see very immoral people doing very moral things. I I know some pretty good pagans that are very moral, okay? How do you tell? How do you know? Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Now, here is the two or three of the most sobering words in the Bible. Are you ready? Note them. Remember 
Lot's wife. What's he talking about? You know the story? Okay, remember Lot's wife. Here's what happens. The, the, Sodom is doomed. God, God actually tried to not doom Sodom, remember? Abraham was like, hey, if there was 10 righteous people, if there's eight righteous people, there was no righteous people. So God saves the remnant. He always saves the remnant. Salvation and judgment always come at the same time. So he brings Lot and his family, and they're running from Sodom. And as fire begins to rain down from Sodom, everyone's like, whatever, who cares, except one person in the party. And the one person in the party was Lot's wife. And she looks back at the city. And it wasn't because she looked back. It was what her looking back signified. Do you know what it signified? She loved this world. That's what she loved. That's what she wanted. She wanted her city back. She wanted her sin. She wanted to live in the world. That's what she wanted. And because of that, she gets turned to a pillar of salt. And whoever seeks, verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But but whoever loses his life will keep it. It's pretty simple. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. He's talking about making the cut there. He's talking about the separation. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. This is intense stuff. There is judgment coming. The question for us is, how can I know that I'm on the right side? And the answer is, remember Lot's wife. What are you looking at? What do you desire? What are the desires of your heart? Being a believer doesn't mean you never sin. Being a believer doesn't mean you don't struggle. Being a believer means you hate your sin. You hate the struggle. You hate the sickness of this world. You see it for what it is, and your eyes are set on the righteousness of God. Your eyes are set on the administration of God. Your eyes are, you're living in his kingdom now. You want to be part of his kingdom breaking in now. Because the world will be drowned. Does that make sense? One last question. What should my tone and my demeanor be toward a drowning world? What should my tone and demeanor be? Or maybe a better way to say it is, what is my tone and demeanor? It's really easy to look at this stuff and go, world's going to be drowning fire. I'm on the boat. Neener, neener. Can I encourage you to remember something? And that is that God does not drown the world without tears. Do you remember what he said? He said, I will that none should perish. God help us if we ever rejoice in our salvation without a sickness in our stomach over the fact that millions and millions of lost people are headed towards damnation. And I would encourage you that the tone that you take to the lost is absolutely important if you come to a lost person with a sense of arrogance you've lost your witness I would encourage you to come with a tear in your eye does God save yes is God sovereign yes does God shut the door yes does God drown the world yes can you say that without a tear in your eye does it affect you does it bother you you know, one of the big arguments that people have against God is, you know, how, how can God possibly judge the world and, and doesn't that bother you? And anyone that says, no, it doesn't bother me, I, don't, I would question their, their clarity. It bothers everyone. It bothers God. God takes no righteous in the destruction of the wicked. 
We live in a lost community of lost people. And we are headed towards a day that is coming. God has already picked it out. We don't know when it is, but it's coming. And it's not going to be water this time. It's going to be fire. We've got to reach these guys. And I don't think standing on the street corner and screaming at them with an arrogant tone is the way to do it. Can I just be honest? They got to know you love them. They got to know you care about them. They got to know that you care about them enough to at least sit down and hear their story. Hear what they do believe and have a, a, a genuine conversation with them. That's, a, that's our approach here. Relational evangelism. We've got to let these guys know that we love them. But we can't save anybody if we're not going to be honest about the fact that there's a flood coming. We've got to be real about this stuff. I would encourage you guys, let's not be the people that are watching our televisions angry and frustrated at the degradation of the morality of our society and our culture. We should be outraged. But don't forget, God's going to deal with that. Our job is to make disciples. Our job is to save as many as we can. Because this world is coming to an end in the way that it was. And God will birth a new world and we will step out onto a new world. And all the tears and all the pain will just be a distant memory. Isn't that exciting? Would you guys grab your communion cups? So why do we do this? We don't do it often enough and that's because I forget sometimes. This thing that you hold in your hand, you guys, right now, is meant to remind you that there is a new ark. Okay? There is a new ark. By the way, if you didn't get one of these, there's some at the back of the room. There is a new ark. The final ark. The true ark. The ark that can truly save. And that ark is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And what this is in your hand that you hold, this signifies and reminds you of this new ark, Jesus Christ. His body reminds you that his body was broken so that your body could live. His body was murdered so that your body could live. He took your penalty so that you could be set free. And it reminds us of that. And it reminds us of a lot of things. It reminds us of the oneness that we have as a family here, as a church. And that's why we take it together. Because we are one united by the cross, united by the work of Jesus. His new blood flows through your veins. You are a child of God, adopted into this eternal church. So when we take the body, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, I would encourage you not to take this because this reminds us of the fact that Jesus gave everything for us and we are now part of his family. If you're not a believer, Cry out to God, be saved, and let this be the first time that you receive the atoning work of the cross. Just please tell somebody about it because we want to make a disciple out of you. Father, thank you for your body that was broken for us. We can not possibly understand the cost that was associated with this. It was not just a physical beating that you took, Jesus. You took the wrath of a holy and righteous Father that was deserved on us and you took it on yourself. And as we eat this, Lord, it reminds us of the fact, Lord, not only that we're saved, but that you are the bread of life and that now we can have newness of life, God. So we take this together. Jesus, you shed your blood to make propitiation for our sins. Meaning, Jesus, you, you shed your blood in order to give us your perfect life and take all of our sin. So, Lord, for those of us that drink this in faith, we are reminded that every sin we've ever committed is forgiven. 
and paid for. Every sin that we will commit is forgiven and paid for. And that if we drink this and that we have faith in the gospel or that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and that our future is secured because you shut the door and you remember the boat. In Jesus' name, let's take this together. Why don't you guys stand and we'll sing.